The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it is not, as if it not, uh, were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who, un who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment... She is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless, Rama's, bless Robin today uh, as he delivers his message to us. Allow us to understand it. Allow us to accept it. And give us the courage and the perseverance to implement it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.
One of the great things about preaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't get to pick and choose what you preach on. You don't have... <laughs> Seriously, as a preacher, you have the... You know, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not doing a, either a topical sermon or a, a textual sermon, you have this... This crisis every week. Lord, what should I preach on? But anyway, so, you know, if you're preaching through a book, that, that's not the, you don't have that crisis. You know, you know, it's the next section of the book. So that's one of the great things about, um, you know, preaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't have to preach on. You know, if it's in the text, then you have to deal with it. And one of the hard things about preaching through a book of the Bible is you don't get to pick and choose what you preach on. <laughs> if it's in the text, you have to deal with it. Um, so just to be clear, uh, the reason I've been talking about sex and marriage, and today I'll be talking about singleness, is because it's in the text. Likewise, somebody asked me uh, last week why I didn't talk about love when I talked about marriage. It wasn't in the text. We get to love in chapter 13, okay? Uh, it's true. So I said this morning's message is about singleness, and I will talk about that. Um, but it's also about the larger issue of living wisely and making wise decisions on how we live our lives as Christians. So just to recap, before Easter, we talked about um, how we can't just do what we want in terms of uh, our, our sexual relations. There are boundaries there for And my mic keeps doing weird things. Um, specifically, the only place for sex is inside the boundaries of a marriage. Then last week, uh, we looked at marriage. And we looked at what it's supposed to be. We saw it's intended to be a, uh, a relationship where people people mutually care for and support one another. And so this week, Paul addresses those who are single. So I should probably start this off with a disclaimer, and that is I've been happily married for almost 30 years, and um, so I don't know a great deal about singleness from personal experience. Now, some people might say that at this point, I should just shut up and sit down, um, don't, don't raise your hands, okay? Uh, however, although I recognize this is a sensitive subject, it is part of this book that we're working our way through. And so I'm going to do my best to talk about this passage, and hopefully we'll end up with some insights on the topic, okay? And the first thing we have to recognize is I'm not the only one who's treading carefully here. Paul is too, he starts off, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. And at the end of the section, when he's talking about widows, he says, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And in between, he often sounds like Tevye in The Fiddler on the Roof, you know? On the one hand, you could do this. But on the other hand, this would work too. And that's not how we're used to hearing Paul sound, is it? That's not normally how Paul sounds. 
He's normally pretty clear on where he stands on things. And throughout these last two chapters, we've seen he's been really clear on the fact that sex outside of marriage is not acceptable for Christians. But having said that, and having recommended that people who are married stay married and enjoy being married, what advice does he have for those who are single? Remembering, of course, that he is himself single. Well, scripture is less clear on how to live as a single person. Part of that is because Jewish culture almost made marriage an obligation. And so what we have in this passage, I think, is Paul thinking out loud about what might be wise options for single people. I also think that part of what Paul is doing here by thinking out loud is helping the Corinthians learn how to apply wisdom and make good choices themselves. I often preach my way through a passage by asking questions and then answering them rather than just saying, this is, the way, this is what you should do, and here's the text that tells you that that's the case. When I ask questions and answer them in the text, I'm trying to model how to approach Scripture, rather than just lay out a conclusion that I've already come to. I think that's part of what Paul's doing here. So with those thoughts in mind, let's actually look at the passage, shall we? He says, starts off by saying, Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, it would have been nice if he'd actually specified what the present crisis was. That would have been very helpful, Paul. But he doesn't, because obviously, everybody he's writing to knows what he's talking about. Right? So about 10 years ago, the world experienced one of the biggest financial crises it's ever seen. As a result of some bankers deciding they could repackage bad mortgages as good mortgages. And perfectly normal to hear people talking about the financial crisis or just the crisis. And everybody knew what they were talking about, right? Um, people, you know, markets hit rock bottom. People lost jobs. Pension plans were wiped out. Um, we all know this. And the Corinthians all knew what the crisis was that Paul was talking about. Unfortunately for us, it's not so clear. There are two major options. One is that Paul is talking about the Lord's return. He often writes as if he expects Jesus to come back at any moment. And certainly verses 29 to 31 have that kind of feel to them. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who are married should live as if they were not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. The other option is that the crisis he's talking about is something more mundane. But also more immediate. Now, Paul left Corinth most likely around AD 51. Right about in that time, and for a few years afterwards, exactly the period between his leaving and writing this letter, there was a severe shortage of grain all over the Eastern Mediterranean. Other people writing at the same time mentioned it. Many Roman citizens and colonists, like those in Corinth, had taken it for granted that the Roman Empire 
would you know, keep them safe, sound, and well-fed. Suddenly, the food had run out. Big question mark hung over the whole world. Was everything going horribly wrong? And the poor in particular, and remember that most of the congregation in Corinth, poor, the poor in particular would be feeling the pinch. It was a time of great distress. As much because people were anxious that it would get worse as because of the immediate effects of the crisis itself. And Turkey is going through a similar more localized crisis, right? As the lira has sunk in value, prices everywhere have gone up. Businesses have gone bankrupt and closed down. We, um, six months ago, we had four businesses in the, in the ground floor of our apartment building. Six months ago? Eight months ago. And then, like, by the end of the year, they'd all gone. Now, you know, other businesses are starting to come back. But, yes, so there's... Business has gone bankrupt, closed down. Everything from tomatoes to Toyotas have gone up in price. And it only seems to be getting worse. It's not a global crisis, but it's certainly a crisis for many Turks. And personally, I think Paul was talking about that kind of crisis, an immediate crisis. But he's also using it to teach us to look forward to the ultimate crisis, the return of the Lord. Because even if the present crisis suddenly passed, if wonderful crops and plentiful food appeared in the markets of Corinth, if the lira were to miraculously recover, there would still be that final crisis to face. So while I don't agree with people who point to an economic crisis or the extreme weather events that we're having due to global warming um, as signs of the end of the world... I do agree that those kinds of things should make us question where our values are. There will never be a time when we, as Christians, can settle down and treat the world as if it's going to last forever. Because it's not. So Paul is doing both. He's looking at the present crisis, and he's saying that it gives us an opportunity to think about how fleeting everything is. But he also has a very specific application. Verse 29 doesn't necessarily mean that world history only has a short time left. It could just as easily mean that the present crisis can't last forever. So it's better to do nothing drastic at the moment. What if you're engaged to be married and suddenly you no longer have a job? It may well be wise under those circumstances to postpone the wedding until until things settle down again and you have a job again. So Paul's basic advice in this section to these Christians is, now is not a good time to be making life-changing decisions. It's never a good idea to make major decisions in the middle of a crisis. You, you, you lack perspective and you're never, not quite sure exactly what's going to happen. So part of learning to live wisely as Christians whether you're single, married, whatever, is learning to understand our times and to make wise decisions, understanding what what the situation is and what would be wise to do in our current context. But having said all that, Paul still tells us his reasons for preferring singleness. He says it frees him from concern 
I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how to please her husband. So, once again, Paul assumes that marriage is about mutually serving one another. That's what it's about. Only this time, when he talks about that, he actually sees that as that can be sometimes be a hindrance to serving God. Now, for centuries, the Catholic Church put singleness ahead of marriage as the only way to be truly spiritual. If you, want, if you wanted to be a truly spiritual person, you had to be celibate, become a priest, become a monk, become a nun. Now, since the Reformation, the, uh, the Protestant church has tended to do the opposite and assume that everybody has to be married and that anything, less, anything else is less than God's best. And as a result, as Protestants, we've tended to ignore the single biggest benefit of being single. The one that Paul points out here. You're free to serve God in places and ways that married people can't. One of the side effects of the Reformation was that the Protestant church did almost no mission work for almost 300 years. 300 years from the beginning of the Reformation till William Carey's small book with a big title. Um, the obligation of Christians for the use of means for the conversion of the heathen. Uh, sorry, no, sorry. A humble inquiry into the obligation of Christians. Anyway, um, in, the, in the late 1700s, almost 300 years. One reason was theological. They didn't believe that the Great Commission applied to them. But the other one was practical. There wasn't any way to do mission. There wasn't any way to reach the world. They dismantled the monasteries and told all the monks to get married. But it was mainly through monks, through single men, that the, all of Europe and most of anywhere else that the gospel had gone, had been, the gospel had been spread. It had been mainly through single men in celibate orders. That's how the gospel spread for 1,500 years. Single people can take risks that simply aren't appropriate for married people. In the 1970s, Riona Peterson went to Albania, the only official atheistic country in the world, to preach the gospel. She was arrested, thrown in prison, threatened with death. You can read her story in a book called Tomorrow You Die. In 1997, Dan Bauman, a friend of mine, went to Iran to serve God and ended up in Evin prison in solitary confinement, accused of spying, and threatened with execution. His book's called um, Imprisoned in Iran. Those are just two people that I know personally. And there are many more who haven't written books. Okay? Many more people, single people in dangerous situations who haven't written books. There's many people, I think, within the Iranian Christian community here in Antalya who could write books about their experiences of suffering for the Lord. I've worked in difficult parts of the and there are some places and some activities that simply aren't appropriate for married people. 
They have other responsibilities to their spouses and their children that don't allow those kinds of risks. When we were traveling in Iran in 2001, we visited the pastor of a church in Shiraz. After a while, I asked him about his family because he was about the same age as me in his 40s. 40s? 50s? How old was I at that point? Uh, Yeah, 40s. Um, And so in that culture, you'd expect him to have a wife and kids. Um, But he wasn't. He was single. And he told me about how Shiraz was a hard place to pastor and how the three previous pastors of the church had been run out of town, mainly by threats against his wife and kids. And he finished his story with these words. If you're going to be a pastor in Shiraz, perhaps it's better to be single. And Paul would say, my point exactly. Then there's Rob Sampson's mom. Rob is my age. Uh, He was a colleague of of ours in, in Pakistan. When his dad died, his mom, who's a doctor, fulfilled a lifelong ambition and went to the field. In fact, she came to Pakistan and she set up a clinic in the Kogan Valley at the end of a dirt track in the middle of nowhere in the foothills of the Himalayas. She was in her 70s. Not that she didn't love her husband when he was alive, loved him dearly, but now she was free to serve God in ways that being married had made impossible. She had joined the close to 50% of the Protestant overseas workforce that are single women. On that topic, it has been my observation that the more dangerous a situation becomes, the more single women there are. Not single men, single women. At one point in Kabul, there were two agencies. As, as, as things got worse and worse, security situation got worse and worse. More and more people were getting killed. There was one agency that was staffed entirely, two agencies rather, that were staffed entirely by single women. Christian agencies. Because most of the men are married with kids. So when things get, get dangerous, they quite rightly leave with their families. That's an appropriate choice to make. Leaving the single woman. At one point in the community that I was pastoring, there were 30 single women and three single men. And it's something that Meryl and I have personal contact with. Because one of those single men was our son. He and our daughter are both in their their mid-30s. They're both single, working overseas. So, I'm not suggesting that Paul thought that only single people could serve God wholeheartedly. That's not what he's saying. He knew all kinds of married Christians. Lots of them in what we would call today full-time ministry. Aquila and Priscilla would be one example. And he talks about um, the, other, most of the, the other apostles as well as having wives who travel with them. And I know that for myself... Without Marilyn's partnership, I really doubt if I would be in ministry today. We're a good team, and without her support, I don't think I'd be here. So it does work both ways. But the fact remains that single people are freer than married ones. As Christians, that freedom is an opportunity to serve God in ways and in places that might be more difficult 
for those who are married. It's an opportunity to learn to love God more, to read more, to reflect more. Actually, try doing either of those two when you're raising a young family, reading and reflecting, to pray more. But what if singleness is not your choice? All this high-minded stuff about single people being freer to serve God is all very well. But what if you don't want to be free? Right? What if you haven't chosen singleness? You'd really like to have someone to share your life, but for one reason or another, try as you might, you you haven't found anybody. Or maybe you thought you had found somebody, and it all fell apart and ended in divorce, and you're single again. Paul says earlier on, if your sexual drives are burn you up, you should marry. And you say, I'd love to, but there's no one available. Paul's basic advice throughout this entire passage is to learn to be content in whatever situation you find yourself in. Part of that learning to be content is simply to accept the reality as it is, instead of living in a world of if only. You know, if only I could find a life partner, then everything would be so much better. Not necessarily. You'd still be you. You know? (laughs) And loneliness is not something that is peculiar to singles. One, one person could be married and still experience loneliness. And another person is single, but not lonely. Some kinds of people will always struggle with loneliness, irrespective of their, of their situation. Others value their solitude, to quote a 50-year-old single man from our old church in Canada. <laughs> I'm a sailor. And there are a number of those kinds of people in the sailing community. They're the ones who single-hand their boats. Sometimes sailing all the way around the world, all by themselves. There's like a whole community of them. So it's a mistake to try and find someone else to fix your life. That's not going to work. And you don't want to put that kind of pressure on someone else. You need to take responsibility for your life as it stands and choose to serve God where you are. Riona Peterson, the one who was in jail in Albania, used to teach on singleness and did so well into her 40s. Essentially assumed that she would stay single. Then out of the blue, someone came along and and she got married. She wasn't looking for someone. She was content where she was. She was fruitful where she was. And actually, that in itself is an attractive trait. So what are some of the issues that singles need to dra- need, singles face? Once again, I speak as someone on the outside. So feel free to disagree with me. Just don't throw anything, okay? <laughs> one thing is the reality that Paul points to more than once, that spouses care for one another. And that doesn't just cut into time for spending with God. It cuts into time for spending with others outside of the marriage. 
Often what happens is as a generation of people get married, the final few who either, who either take longer to marry or never marry end up feeling like they're losing their friends. We were Skyping with our son on Friday. He's back in Canada for a break. And he noted that he no longer knows any single people in Hamilton. Everyone's gotten married and now have kids. Jason's working community in Afghanistan is mainly single people, actually mainly single women. So it's a bit of a shock to go home, home, and realize that you're the odd one out and everybody else has moved on and you have no single friends left. They're all married. So it's very easy for a single circle of relationships to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And they can be begin to feel lonely, rejected. Then there's the pressure. The pressure from peer groups, from parents, from society. They come under, people come, to, come under pressure just because their friends are getting married and no one's turned up for them yet. And even today, society still tends to accord more respect to those who are married. Then there's parents who say really unhelpful things. Like, are there no men in the world who can marry you? Or, seriously, I'm serious. Are you not beautiful or educated enough to get a husband or a wife? And here's the kicker. I want to be alive to see my grandchildren. That's not helpful. Okay? Just saying. The church often doesn't help matters either. So see, often in the church, marriages seem like a promotion, you know? Like. So sometimes those who, are, who are, aren't married can't help but feel like, say, Lord, when's my time going to come? I know, I know from talking to singles that they often feel like second-class citizens in some churches. And some churches do treat singles that way. You're not... You're not second-class citizens. The danger, of course, is that these kinds of pressures lead, lead you into, into feeling rejected, and that, can turn, in turn, can lead to making bad decisions. Decisions that often lead into unhealthy relationships. So what should you do? Should you do? Well, Paul's advice might actually be summed up in one word. Relax. Make the choice to glorify God and let him choose, let him choose how he best wants to use you. So you won't be disappointed whatever that looks like. Choose what he wants for you and then you won't be disappointed. Don't allow your desires to get out of hand. Set your mind on things above. Don't be preoccupied with thoughts of marriage or sex. Set set your mind on spiritual things. Good way to deal with that is to stay busy. Invest in the lives of others. I'm not just saying that as a cop-out. You know, God gave Adam work to do in the garden before he gave Adam a wife. Okay, so work comes first. (laughs) No. But it is true that we can fulfill our, our, our identity as made in the image of God 
as a single person, through, through what God has called us to do, we don't have to get married. Okay? Build healthy relationships. I don't know a, lot, a great deal about this. I know there are Christian singles groups. I hear both positive and negative comments on that. Um, but if someone comes around and he or she is the right person, then go ahead and get married. Especially if your lives together glorify God more than they do apart. There's a, um, I actually have taken this message and asked uh, a lady in her 60s who's been single all her life to check it out. So some of the comments in here are from her, not from me. And that was one of her comments. Yeah, only get married if you can glorify God more married than single. That was her, that was, that was her input. Well, if, well, some of the other stuff in here is hers as well. And if you, if you don't get married, you're still unique, whole, and complete as a single person. Now, church culture, other cultures that you might be part of may not agree with that. But I think scripture says... That as a single person, you are unique, whole, and complete as you are. And all of us, all of us need to make sure that the church is a true community. It's a place where all are welcome, young, old, single, married. All are welcome and are valued for who they are. A place where relationships are built that sustain people and do away with loneliness. Married people need to include singles in their social circle. And singles need to make space for marrieds too. See, it's often easier to just hang out with people who are like us. But diversity is so much better. It makes life so much more interesting. If you have people who are younger than you, older than you, different stages of life than you, single, married. So let's have the church be a place where people can serve God as they are. Married, single, with kids, without kids. The Bible says that we're a family. Let's make that more than just a metaphor. Let's make that a reality, shall we? Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you for the wisdom in your word. We thank you for the way in which we can almost follow, just walk along with Paul as he negotiates his way through these issues and learn from him. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that applies your word to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that each one of us, irrespective of our place in life, our situation, each one of us is unique and valued by you. And that you love us. You love me. You love every single person in this room uniquely. Thank you for that, Lord. Pray that you would help each one of us to reach out to those around us to truly make us or make us a family where we care for one another 
because we are all born into the same family by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.